Visit our website at oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Casey. Hello, my name is Casey. I'm a compulsive overeater and bulimic. It is a thrill and an honor to be here. Hi. Um, I want to thank Walter in absentia and uh, Tusa, who's here, and all of you. Uh, actually, I'm a little nervous about this. I'm not a lot nervous about this, but I am a little nervous about this because 40 minutes seems like an awfully long time to tell my story. It's either too much or too little, right? I could go on for a week or I could go on for 10 minutes. But, of course, I got down to 35, so thank you for all the chip takers. And, for <laughs> and um, you know, what... Uh, when I'm asked to share, I sometimes think that my story is substantially different than the typical story, and I wonder what people will get out of it. And it is substantially different, but it is not different enough that I don't think I'll say something that will help other people. So it's my only story. It's all I can tell. Um, I, um, I've had food issues since uh, before I was born, and in my case, that's literal. Uh, I've almost died from food-related causes five times in my life, and only once was it something I did to myself. Um, my mother had toxemia, so I was an induced baby reasonably early. Um, not, you know, super preemie, but reasonably early. Um, I then had, I then was a celiac child, which in retrospect probably was not celiac. It's what the doctor called it then. But as I understand from uh, friends and acquaintances who have that disease, it is not a disease that ever goes away. So it was something that looked like celiac, that my pediatrician was calling celiac. But for uh, two years, I lived on soy milk and bananas, so I was not introduced to real foods for a long time. Uh, then I was uh, reasonably normal with regard to eating until I was about six when I developed an extreme case of hives and was allergic to about 300 plus foods for about six years until I was about 12. So I wasn't eating a lot of things. There, Believe it or not, there are actually funny stories about the hives uh, because I was once on a show asked to shell peanuts, but I had never seen a peanut. You know, so uh, I was not allergic of the sort that I couldn't touch it, but I didn't know what to do. Um, then uh, I was okay from 12 till about 21 when I was a senior in college and became a type 1 diabetic. Many people are not familiar with the two types, but it's sudden onset. And, um, you know, from the time I thought I had a stomach flu till the time I was almost dead was about 10 days. Um, uh, then, what, then what happened uh, is that I took reasonably good care of myself for the first few years and then started to take terrible care of myself because I discovered a trick. And my trick was as follows. When I identify myself as a bulimic, I'm a bulimic that, uh, you know, only type 1 diabetics have this possible option. But I can eat anything I want and not metabolize it if I don't take my insulin. You guys don't have that choice. You're lucky. But uh, you have other choices. Uh, I never stuck my finger down my throat. And uh, what uh, happened is that more or less I did this as a way to stay thin. I was never very heavy, ever. I was a very thin child. And 
One summer, I had, I, I'm five three plus, like five three and a half. One summer, I got up to about 140, but that was the most I ever weighed. And, you know, so it was not, but I thought I was fat. That's a different story. My mother lost a lot of weight when I was a kid. And um, so for a day here, a day there, you know, a few days at a time, I would uh, not take my insulin. Of course, I never told the truth about it. You know, nobody ever knew. Uh, my doctors, because they don't want to really recognize this as a problem among diabetics, which I think has changed. I'm not sure it was as, as I'm saying it, nefariously intentional in terms of denial. It really wasn't a known thing until recently. But uh, supposedly 30 or 40% of all female diabetics do this at some point. But um, what uh, happened is that... Um, you know, my doctor could have figured it out if he sort of looked at my blood sugars and figured it out, but he didn't. So then, then I, my story is also, and I, in the release I was allowed to sign uh, co-addiction, co so I know I'm at least allowed to talk about other addictions here. And I was also a pothead for a very long time, a rather successful, professional, happily married for a long time pothead, and still married. Um, and... Um, so when I gave that up, which uh, I did in 2000, the food stuff, uh, the not taking insulin stuff, it's, you know, it's an alligator game. We, you know, some of us who are co-addicted know that alligator game. And, uh, you know, you put down one thing and something else pops up. So, in fact, I was probably thinner than I'd ever been, except when I was an undiagnosed diabetic. You know, basically you starve to death, that's that disease. But I was thinner than I'd ever been. I thought I looked great. Um, I was uh, physically sick, um, but I didn't think I had flipped a switch. My daughter, my father, and I uh, were going off to New Hampshire to go on vacation. I'm a New York City girl. That may end up being part of what I talk about tonight. So far, it hasn't seemed relevant, but it is relevant to some other some parts of this. And um, our other life had been in New Hampshire. My husband couldn't go. He was working too hard. Uh, I met um, my father at the Boston airport uh, with my daughter, who was then about 14. Um, we went to a hotel in New Hampshire for the night. We were supposed to go to a little island the next morning. I didn't make it to the island because I had flipped a switch physically in my body that basically was not clear I could flip it. Well, I take it back. I could not flip it back. It was not clear whether the medical profession could flip it back. They did. I'm obviously I'm standing here. But um, they, um, I was brought to the hospital. I was in and out of consciousness for a couple of days. I ended up being in the hospital for five days. And when I got out, uh, I had been in AA for about a year at that point. And I had heard of OA. I had never attended an OA meeting. I didn't know much about it except I assumed it was rather similar, which it is, and um, I thought it was time to go to a meeting. I'll come back and tell a couple of stories from the hospital in a minute, but I arrived back in Los Angeles um, within three or four days of being released from that hospital. The tail end of that week's vacation, I was able to catch, and then my daughter and I flew back, and I called Central. Uh, that's why the central phones need to be mad, not for me personally, for all of us. And uh, I called Central. I said, so tell me about this thing. Can you mail me a directory? We now have the Internet, but the Internet was 
Oh, the internet was there. I guess it was OA wasn't yet on the internet, or I didn't think to look at, for it. And uh, they mailed me a directory. I went to a meeting, uh, I think appropriately on August 6, 2001, because that is Hiroshima Day. And it was my little mini Hiroshima. You know, things were certainly blowing up around me, inside me, about me. And um, I um, stayed. I've never left. I'll get to tales of how much absence I have, when I got it, when I lost it, when I got it. But um, back in the hospital bed, because I was fortunate and new program, 12 Steps, I was once... I don't know what I was doing when I was unconscious because I don't remember. But when I had regained some consciousness, I was lying there in sort of fetal position, feeling like I was about to die because that actually was a possibility. And um, I was doing steps two and three all over the place, just lying there, uh, curled up saying, uh, you know, I can be restored to sanity. A power greater than me can restore me to sanity. Because I realized what I was doing was totally insane. And by that point, it wasn't even that I had become, consciously at least, obsessed with being that thin. I had I'd gotten into such a state of denial that I didn't realize until I was forced to realize just how harmful it was. I mean, I would... At that point, certainly had done things that were less harmful to stay thin. I thought that, you know, being thin was real important. And I'd rather not be thin by not eating very much, thank you. That's not my favorite method. So, uh, you know, I could uh, eat almost anything I wanted and if I didn't take the insulin to cover it. So I was lying in my fetal position, going through step two and going through step three. You know, all inside my own head, not not talking with others there. I didn't have a 12-step call in the hospital. But um, I was, you know, turning it over, uh, thinking that it was possible to turn over. I need to mention that I got into my first program, which was AA, because my daughter, who was then 14, so by the time I got into OA, she was 15, my daughter, who was then 14, basically wanted nothing to do with me anymore. She said, Mom, you've got a real problem, and I'm not going to be a part of your life. Who knows if that would have happened. There certainly weren't custody issues. The marriage was solid. But I decided that I had to quit my chemical and uh, you know, vegetable inebriance. Um, so uh, I had quit those. And my daughter was a big part of my really caring about OA because it took her probably six months in the first program to believe that I really meant it. I had, of course, like many addicts, lied originally about getting sober. Uh, when I actually got sober, I didn't lie about it. I'm lucky in that program I haven't slipped. I haven't gotten to my slips in OA yet. I have slipped in this one. But um, what... Um, happened is that she was on that vacation with me and she felt especially betrayed because I had told her I was not going to you know, do do any of that bad stuff anymore. Of course I didn't do that bad stuff, I did other bad stuff. Same idea. She you know, they're a distinction without much of a difference. And um so it took she was very angry. It took her a while and 
my story and her story is another. I mean, three programs are also in Alan. You know, but that's another story. But what um, happened is that I walked into the rooms. I walked into the rooms late because the address of the meeting that I had was an address I was not familiar with. So I got to be one of the people who says yes when it is there anybody who's walked in since the start of the meeting who's a newcomer. I got to be the since the start of the meeting newcomer. Uh, people came up to me afterwards. People welcomed me. I think it's a much harder program. And it's not that I think it's a much harder program because, you know, it necessarily is a much harder program. I think it's a much harder program because there is not one example, there is not one story. You know, when we say we can't just put it down, not only can we not just put it down, but the it that we can't put down, you know, whether you were a cocaine addict or an alcoholic or a marijuana smoker, the it is pretty similar. The it here manifests in really different ways. I mean, I had the bulimia problem. Some people have the anorexia problem. Some people have the compulsive overeating problem. Lots of people, myself included, have trigger food problems. I mean, I, there are three foods I won't have in my house. If anybody cares what they are, you know, I could tell you or ask me. But, uh, you know, I will not have them in my house. Um, and I will eat them outside, and sometimes that's a pleasure, but that's a different story. So um, what happened is I kept coming back. Um, I got abstinent reasonably quickly. I've burned through sponsors. I, uh, one, one of my sponsors only is in this room. If I counted them, it's not as many as some, but I've probably had nine or ten sponsors in my seven years in program. And most of those were in the first, say, three years. You know. What um, happened is that I was asked to call at certain times. Why? I was asked to, uh, you know, follow a food plan. Nobody was giving me a food plan. They were saying, find a food plan, invent it if you want to. And, of course, that's part of this program that we can invent our food plan. But don't not have a food plan. You know, that's a bad idea. And my question was, why? And I just didn't want this disease. And I think the primary reason I didn't want this disease is because it is so much of what I've been denying my whole life. When I when I say that it popped up, it popped up, but that's all it did. It had been there since I was quite young, not as young as some who I hear share. But um, really began, I think, when I was 13 years old. My mother returned to the workforce, and I was coming home from school at about 3. She wasn't getting home till about 6 or 6.30, and I was feeling left out alone, et cetera. Later on, I found, you know, a boyfriend and drugs, but didn't have them right away. You know, and uh, so um, I was eating. I remember eating frequently, not always, but there was, you know, half a loaf of bread and butter. I was not yet a diabetic. It was not yet raising my blood sugars, but it was making me insane spiritually. You know, I, I did have uh, an insane spiritual experience. I did feel compelled and crazy. Um, so I thought that putting down the food would be a good idea. It wasn't that easy. So I got seven months in my first year or so. I have lots of time left. I got, I got 
seven months in my first year or so. And then my, my, what I wanted to do is I wanted to always take as far as I could control it. I mean, sometimes you calculate well. But as far as I could control it, always the right amount of insulin at the right times and eat the right foods. And when I blew that, uh, I said, okay, I'm a total failure. It took me five or six months to get, I think, another month. I kept coming back. Uh, I, um, I didn't keep records of when I lost it and when I got it. Um, but uh, I knew from my first program, oh, that it says so in the book as well, that book, you know, the, the big one, uh, that the reason we all do fourth steps is because if we don't, we're going to lose what we have. What we have. I had done a fourth step in AA. I was doing a fourth step in OA. I was asked to do a fourth step in OA. And I was asked to put down my resentments. Well, having done pretty thorough work in my AA program, consciously, I didn't have very many resentments. You know. So I ended up with a sponsor once who I thought was fabulous. I mean, a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons, get wisdom from all of them, right? But one of the reasons was that she said, well, if you don't think you have that many resentments, put down everybody who's ever annoyed you. That was a long list. I mean, anybody who's ever annoyed me, that's a big list. And I'm sure I didn't get everybody who's ever annoyed me, but I got a lot of people down there. And um, I don't actually agree that that's the way to do it. I actually am working with a sponsee at the moment. I've got two sponsees in this program, and uh, I really do believe it's what's current. I don't think we have to tell stories out of first and second grade if they no longer bother us. But it was very helpful for me because there were things that did currently bother me that I didn't want to admit currently bothered me. So making that long list of people who annoyed me and institutions who annoyed me was very helpful. Um, I started to work it through. She ended up having some personal problems. I believe she's still in program, though I haven't seen her in a while. I stopped doing it. It was too long a list. I mean, it really had probably over 100 people on it. And uh, I stopped doing it. Went in and out of program for a while. Um, then I had a sponsor who uh, I love, and she just moved pretty far away, and that's why she's not my sponsor anymore. But she had me, because she had done it, do the adult children of alcoholics fourth step. And that is a... David Copperfield, I am born, you know, biography. Um, and, uh, but I did it. It took a year and a half to do. Uh, it took a year and a half to do with weeks or months in between. I actually began it on a vacation uh, with my husband, uh, who's, who's here tonight, and we were sitting in a rented home far away, and I'm sitting there doing it. It was very helpful. And what was helpful about it wasn't that the resentments that I was talking about were current, because they were it. But what's helpful is that I was forced to see the patterns. I was absolutely forced to see the patterns. Even if I no longer had a particular resentment, I could see when I lied. I could see when I cheated. 
I could see when I abused myself. Oh, self-abuse. I mean, I guess if we're in here, we've all done some form of it. But self-abuse is something I had done since I was a little kid. I'm not a cutter, although some of us are. But uh, I am somebody who would, you know, sit around and, you know, pick the skin on my feet. That's kind of a cutter, isn't it? And, uh, you know, bad things. I was raised, well, now I'm going to back up a bit. I was raised by a narcissistic mother, and I'm not the only one who says she is, so I don't think I'm just a spoiled brat. And a uh, father who, pretty kind to me, pretty wonderful, but wasn't around a lot. So I had a fabulous coping mechanism for dealing with the narcissistic household. And my coping mechanism was to be sincerely and truly kind and friendly and loving and concerned about lots of other people. So I had all these friends. I still do. And I had all these friends who cared about me, and it was wonderful. In retrospect, what it was about, partially, not only, I mean, I actually liked people. You know, people sometimes stand up here and say they don't like people. I like people a lot. But uh, what um, it was about in retrospect is that if I didn't feel good about me within 12 to 24 hours, I could arrange to be with somebody who did like me. And then it was a little better. You like me, I like me, let's go on till the next moment. And that worked. So uh, the way this all really festered is I've ended up in a helping business profession. I'm not a nurse, but I'm in a business profession where I help people. And... We moved out here from New York City where I was loved and loved by probably hundreds of people, liked and liked by thousands of people. I connect for a living. That's what I do. I network for a living. And all of a sudden, there was nobody who knew me. They didn't dislike me. They didn't like me. They didn't know me. So all of a sudden, I uh, end up here by myself. I didn't have a choice about moving, uh, but I thought it was a good idea. I knew it would be hard. I didn't know it would be that hard. Uh, so I arrived here and all this other stuff happened. You know, immediately various forms of inebriance. I uh, do believe that the sixth step, if we're working through the steps, fifth step wasn't that hard. I had a sponsor who was good at telling me my character defects. You know, um, my character defects were single digits, I'm happy to say. And... Um, but uh, I do think the sixth step is absolutely, positively the hardest step around. For me, I'm not telling you it's the hardest step for everybody. I think different people have different steps. Uh, my, my hardest step is always the sixth step, that little word entirely. You know, how can we be entirely ready to give up our defects of character? Uh, I still get frightened. Uh, and when I get frightened, uh, I know what can uh, get me through a lot of the fear. I happen to run quickly to living from the eyebrows up. Not everybody does this, but this is a bit of program of living from my heart. And I live from my heart with people I really loved. I'm lucky that there are people I really loved. But most of you I was afraid of. Uh, but I wasn't seemingly afraid of you because... I'm smart, and I hang out with people who are smart by, when I have a choice, and I often do. And we can have a lot of fun and games. We can have a lot of fun and games. I could talk about books. I could talk about politics. I could talk about you know, theater. 
and I enjoy that. So what this program has been about for me is getting rid of that, absolutely positively getting rid of that. I heard a share yesterday morning uh, in my other program about somebody who had gone to Austria, sought out a meeting in Austria, does not speak German, and sought out the one English-speaking meeting in Austria that he could find, and it was not close to where he was. I think he had to take a train for about an hour and a half. And he went to what was supposed to be the English-speaking meeting, and it was in German. He doesn't speak German. So uh, everybody was sharing. Uh, He was listening. They then asked him to share because he was the visitor from the United States. Uh, He shared, and he said he had a great time sharing. Everybody was nodding, and everybody was, you know, nobody, but they they didn't speak English. Um, At least they didn't tell him they did. He suspects they didn't. And uh, there's the language of the heart. There's, let's forget about talking about whether we've read the same books or seen the same shows or like or care about the same artists or even care about art. Who cares? What we care about is that we are people here, that we are united, as in all 12-step programs. We are united not by our successes, but by our failures. Your successes and my successes may look very different. Your failure and my failure are identical. They're absolutely identical. And uh, those are the stories we hear. When I first walked in these rooms, I came home after an early meeting, and I was generically, I don't violate the traditions, but generically describing something I had heard at a meeting to my husband. And I mentioned in passing something about getting food out of the garbage. And he looked at me and he said, food out of the garbage? You know, I mean, there's nobody in these rooms who has uh, doesn't understand food out of the garbage. You know, we don't, we, 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 we don't have to explain that. Uh, there's nothing to explain. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, that is the language of the heart. I uh, think if I keep on going too much longer, I will really be rambling. I'm happy to take questions. Thank you so much. Yes? Hi, uh, good evening. I wonder, could you tell me how you work your 11th step, please? Sure. Um, question is how I work my 11th step. I don't know if the recording had heard that. Um, I am a woman who does not believe in a traditional God. Nonetheless, nonetheless, I begin most mornings, uh, for years I began every morning, but these days it slips sometimes. I begin most mornings on my knees. I begin most mornings on my knees in front of my bed uh, doing steps one, two, and three. Um, In my case, I am powerless over, I've got a litany of a few things. Um, I believe God can restore me to sanity. I recite the third step prayer. Most mornings, not all mornings, I have four books from three programs. The one that gets two books is OA. And, uh, you know, they're my uh, daily readers. Uh, in terms of meditation, I don't meditate much, but I happen to go to um, meetings that include five minutes of meditation at the end. Not one. I think the one minute is, you know, useless. I mean, sometimes I meditate, but I'd say I meditate on my own ten times a year. 
you know. Uh, but um, I get in three or four, depending upon how many of those other meetings I go to, of five minutes at least in the morning. So that's it. Yes? Hi, Susan. Hi, Susan. I think that's one of the really important things of the program for me. I think it's humbly asking him. In my case, him might be the interconnectedness of the universe. I mean, my, my God is sort of, you know, the, the oxygen on Pluto is the same oxygen in me. I mean, it might take a billion years, but uh, what um, I know without a doubt that I can't do that by myself. Uh, which is why I find six, step six pretty hard. My experience is on those occasions when I can work six well, seven isn't that hard. Um, and I think that's, by the way, it's, it's a common saying around these rooms, but I think that's true for all the steps. If you're having a hard time with a step, probably you haven't done the previous one very well. Yeah, so. Yes? Hi, you talked about a food plan. I would like to know um, what you consider your food plan. My food plan is to eat three meals a day, try to eat nothing in between, which most of the time I do. I have an absolute exemption from that because I am a diabetic for if I need to eat something because of blood sugar. I always walk around with raisins and if I'm for some reason, without them. Like, I guess that takes away the always, doesn't it? But, uh, you know, I'll, I'll eat something else. But I try to eat three meals a day. I try to eat nothing in between. Um, it's my food plan. Yes? Oh, thank you, Casey, for your uh, pitch. Um, have you been in a situation where you've gone to a home or gone to a place and without your knowledge, they, your trigger foods are there or one of your trigger foods are there? And if you've ever been in that situation, how do you handle that? Oh, I actually don't find that that hard because, as I said, I do eat these trigger foods outside. It doesn't have to be a mystery. I won't eat peanut butter or any other nut butters in my house. If there's a jar, I'll eat it all. Uh, I won't keep several other kinds of nuts. I don't go, need to go into details. There are some nuts I can keep in my house. I, I love nuts. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll go crazy. And, uh, you know, if I'm at other people's homes, I was at somebody else's home Thursday evening. Uh, I was there for a meeting. There was it was a potluck dinner. There was a bowl of almonds. I actually like it when that happens because I can grab a handful and know that they're not in my house. So, <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for sharing. During the holidays, uh, and I think it's a combination thing. I just had a little mini insight within your story. Uh, that was right, very different from months I've heard. Uh, getting in environments where you're having the junk food and pizza food for holiday food. Uh, and I just realized that sometimes when I overeat, it's an inferiority kind of thing where I'm uncomfortable in my environment and I have a tendency to overeat. And uh, also, all the goodies that are around make it even compounded. How do you deal with all this? 
one of the great things about having had a lot of sponsors is they've all shared some wisdom with me. And um, this is not an original line with this woman, but it's the first place I heard it. You know, one of her great phrases, she has two, I'll probably share the other one too, but one of her great phrases is, uh, failing to plan is planning to fail. And um, what I can sometimes do is eat in advance of a party and know that what I will do is walk around with a glass of water or a diet soda or bring something to eat of my own. And in my case, it's easier than probably your case. In my case, I can say I suspected there wasn't going to be much I could eat here, so I brought this salad for myself. I'm a diabetic. I can get away with that more easily. You know, you probably can't, but, you know, that is how I deal with it. Her other great phrase, by the way, because uh, she's talking about when things are in real crisis, how that's exactly when you should be guarding your abstinence, you know, with, to the utmost, is, uh, you know, when the enemy is surrounding the camp, it's not time to let the drunks at the perimeter. <laughs> The drunk, she's, it's not time to let the people who are drunk guard your perimeters when the enemies are, at, are surrounding the camp. I just realized I haven't repeated the last several questions, but this question is how my relationships have changed since I joined OA. Um, let's start with I don't lie. That's a big deal. And I didn't lie about much, but I lied about food. I lied about, you know, taking my insulin, and in my case that's pretty crucial because the people who love me want me to take my insulin. You know, I lied about uh, self-sabotage. You know, I'm not telling you that I don't mess up these days, but I don't mess up intentionally. And um, what starts there. Uh, boundaries? Boundaries is one of my hard things. I mean, I was raised by a narcissist, you know. And uh, what um, happens is that because I don't lie, because I talk about my feelings more, there are people who care about me in my life who are much better at keeping boundaries than I am, and not just family members, not just you know, my husband or my daughter, both of whom sometimes look at me and say, you allowed somebody to do what? You know, but, uh, but I listen because I tell the truth. I can hear them. They can say, well, that wasn't the right thing to do, so I can hear. Um, the, the, <laughs> my third trick, my third trigger food is pumpernickel bagels for sure, and and sometimes just really good dark bread. I allow myself to eat bread, and I will eat a pumpernickel sandwich if I'm at a deli. Sometimes I'll enjoy it, but again, I won't have it in the house. And I only realized that particular trigger food about four or five months ago, and I had a bunch of pumpernickel bagels in the freezer which I didn't go to, but I knew if I went to, I would have eaten, or might have eaten, you never know for sure, but could have eaten all six of them. So I took them and threw them out. Yes? Um, how do you suggest um, 
feeling when 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 your seat has been triggered and you're you're uh, wanting to binge or starting to is there some I have very conversational relationship with my God. I mean, really conversational. You know, where uh, the God I don't believe in, but uh, you know, but I, um, you know, I will. Before I came here this evening, I'll tell. Why don't I talk about this evening? I wasn't triggered with food, but it's I think a very good analogy. Um, I got a piece of professional news earlier this afternoon that basically showed me that somebody else was able to do a deal that I thought I could have done had I thought of it. I just forgot, oh my God, I forgot to do that and somebody else snuck it in, right? And I felt like I'm a total professional failure. Not to mention, by the way, that I'm a failure as a human being. I mean, you know, and... Um, and I had to go speak at this meeting tonight, uh, which, as I say, I'm not nervous about 10, 20 minutes shows, 40 minutes shows. I was nervous. I literally got on my knees and said something like, uh, please let me believe that I have the ability to give these people something, because I thought I would be able to give you guys nothing. You know, please let me believe I have the ability to give these people something. Please let me talk from the heart. Please let me experience, uh, you know, an ability to listen and to share. So thank you. And that's it, right?